Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For all the years of her life, this was the story Chaya Liba told. The missing parts stayed missing. There were many brothers and sisters Shadorovsky, but Chaya Liba loved Asher best, a thousand times best. He was her only vanity. She was the oldest sister. Between them, there were six. Yaakov, Lazer, Benyomen, Yitzchak, Devorele, and Masha. And in two different graveyards, the large one there in Jitomer, and the fresh one here in Cristo, Wisconsin. A few more, souls shaken out of them like seeds from a burst pod, early or late. So begins Rosellen Brown's delicious new novel, The Lake on Fire. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to the author of Civil Wars, Half a Heart, Tender Mercies, Before and After, plus five other books, about a story set at the end of the 19th century in Chicago. 17-year-old Chaya Liba escapes a forced marriage on a desolate Wisconsin farm commune where her immigrant family had settled in hopes of finding a place where a Jew could farm the land, feed his family, and prosper. Chaya's brother Asher, a brilliant but strange child, follows her onto the train. Arriving in Chicago, they happen upon a wealthy young man who guides them to where the Jews live. And after finding work, Chaya drags herself day and night to poorly lit, filthy sweatshops while 10-year-old Asher wanders the city, stealing books to devour and valuables to give to the poor, like his hero, Robin Hood. Asher befriends the discarded laborers who built the Columbian Exposition of 1893 that transformed Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood into the White City. Meanwhile, Chaya is courted by the wealthy young man who took them to Maxwell Street. He introduces her to Jane Adams, who offers refuge and ideas about how, how to help Chicago's most destitute. Let's get to it. Hi, Rosellen, and thank you for talking to me today. Well, I have to tell you, frankly, uh, there's nothing that I would rather talk about than my book. I've been doing a lot of book groups, which has been a wonderful thing. And um, this is another one. And, you know, it's my favorite subject at the moment. Well, let's <laughs> get right to it. How did you come to write this story? Well, you know, first of all, I have to say that the astonishing thing to me is how long this had been percolating for me before I even set pen to paper. And by the way, it's pen to paper, not finger to computer. Like so many more writers than anybody knows, I do write by hand. Um, but I actually found a letter from an old friend. It actually sort of fell out of a book that I was I was going through the shelves trying to get rid of books and, um, you know, giving them away. And out fluttered a letter, which kind of sounds like the beginning of a novel, right? Um, the mystery letter. And in it, you know, somebody, a friend of mine said all sorts of things. And then he had a PS at the bottom that said are you still thinking about those New Jersey Jewish chicken farmers? Well, that happens to be a different set of farmers, and there definitely were many of those. I keep meeting people who are related to them. This was different, though, um, and uh, I will get to, to where I got the idea from. But the fact is that this letter was, was dated 1987, which is kind of appalling to me, actually, that I was already apparently somehow thinking about this. And the reason for that answers your question, which is where did you get the idea for this book? Um, I had read a book, a wonderful book by a woman named Andy Manners, 
A-N-D-E, Manners, um, called Poor Cousins, which was about poor Jews from Eastern Europe, not the wealthy, you know, um, New York German Jews or the first Jews who came to Newport or anything like that. This was about the people who were in many ways not wanted by the uh, highfalutin Jews who had got here first. And in it, uh, Manners talks about the fact that around in the 1880s, a number of Jewish philanthropists like Baron de Hirsch and other names that would be familiar to us, Jacob Schiff and those people, decided that it would be ennobling for the poor Jews of some of the cities to actually get dirt under their fingernails and become farmers. And they got together with the Hebrew Immigrant Association to um, send, I believe it was 26 different groups. Some people went to Palestine, but about 26 groups t- came to the United States. And unfortunately, they were sent to impossible places that were not going, anybody would have known that they wouldn't work out. Um, they had no money. They had no English. They had no expertise because, of course, you know, in Russia, Jews were not allowed to own land. So nobody had been ever stood behind a plow. So what happened was that these groups came to the United States and the farms were a disaster one after another. And so I decided that I was really curious about what it would be like to immigrate under those circumstances. And I decided that I would have a young girl um, be my protagonist. And then somewhere along the line, and honestly, I don't remember how he entered the picture, I needed a foil for her because she wasn't going to be able to carry a whole novel. And that's when the crazy, brilliant, wonderful little brother whom everybody loves, frankly, he's everybody's favorite character, Asher, uh, got into the into the mix. And then, you know, I did what, what I do with every book, um, which is sort of put one foot in front of another trying to figure out, well, so then what would have happened? What would it have been like? Um, and I decided, and here's where another book comes into into play. I was thinking about Sister Carrie Dreiser's book, mm-hmm. which I teach when I, I teach a course on writing about the city, writing about Chicago. And uh, there's a wonderful quote from Sister Carrie's, the only nice, decent, graceful line in the entire book, which is a very significant book, but it's terribly written. It's clunky. There is, and I was looking for an epigraph from from my book, something I could put at the head of the book. And this is the only line I found that was useful. And as it turns out, this is kind of, in many ways, the story or one of the many stories of the novel. In the novel, he said, "When a girl leaves her home at eighteen, she does one of two things: either she falls into saving hands and becomes better." where she rapidly assumes the cosmopolitan standard of virtue and becomes worse. Mm. And basically, you know, what happens to Sister Carrie is she's a farm girl in Wisconsin, gets on a train to come to the big city, to the big, you know, to the bright lights. By the time she gets off the train, she's already fallen in with a traveling salesman. And that there begins a kind of career for her with with an upward trajectory, which then becomes a downward trajectory. She's involved with a number of men. She becomes a sort of showgirl and an actress. By the time the book is over, people have died, families have been sundered and so on. And so I decided, that I could think about the second part of that quote, which was, or the first part of the quote, before we got to the uh, cosmopolitan standard of virtue, I thought, if she felt, fell into saving hands, perhaps she could become better. Well, she is her own saving hands, actually. She doesn't need anyone else. But along the way, you know, she does, uh, as you say in your introduction, meet 
Jane Addams, so she does have some good tutors. So let's go back to the part where the family is sent to Wisconsin. They have no farming experience, and they're given a packet with money, but no instructions. Right, no instructions. How did that come No about? expertise. Well, that was just a kind of crazy idea. Sorry to say that philanthropists have those ideas often. So we'll make somebody else better, and simply thought they could do it because if they wanted to succeed, they could succeed. Well, we know how that often turns out. And in this case, it's a very bleak uh, existence on the farm, I have to say. I enjoyed writing about some of the sort of disasters mm-hmm. where the chickens wouldn't stay in the coop and the, you know, and the cows wouldn't milk and they were taken advantage of by the neighbors and, and so on and so forth. And the reason that Chaya, by the way, Chaya is her very uncompromising name, which a lot of people have trouble pronouncing, Chaya. Uh, by the time she leaves, it's because her mother decides, as so many mothers would, that she's going to marry her off to a really grotesque young man who happens along, who's related to someone on the farm. And she is so appalled that she decides that the only thing she can do is leave. And it isn't necessarily to make good in the city or anything like that. It's really to get out of there and not have to be married to this man and see herself having his children and so on. So as you said, she goes to the train and her little brother kind of stows away with her in a, in a way. They come to, to Chicago and then Chicago becomes a protagonist in the book. Chicago is mm-hmm. really a character. It's a big character in the yes. book. So Chaya and her brother happen upon Gregory at the train right. station. And when asked where the Jews live, he takes them directly to Maxwell Street. So why did the Jews live there? How did he know? And can you talk a bit about the old Maxwell Street area? Well, Maxwell Street was, you know, the city was very, very um, ghettoized, stratified, whatever you want to call it. And so it's not surprising. I mean, there was Greek town, there was, you know, Polish part of town up on Milwaukee Avenue. There were a lot of different places where people lived. So it's not surprising one Jew comes, another one comes, you know, his cousin from the shtetl comes. Before you know it, you have a neighborhood. So this was very, very poor neighborhood. Um, If you look around near what is now Roosevelt Avenue, you'll see um, the remains. There's very, very little of anything left. There's now, there was a market, a very famous market in Maxwell Street, a street market. Now there's a kind of pseudo street market for people who are sentimental about the whole thing. It's full of plastic junk. But at the time, it was very vibrant. It's where all most of the Jews of Chicago lived. I can't say that everybody lived there, but certainly the poor Jews clustered around there. And the reason that Gregory knew about it is that it was well known. He was a sophisticated man. He's a wealthy man. And he knows, you know, who lives where. And so he takes her there. She finds a widow whose husband has just died who needs to take in boarders, which was another very, very common thing. A lot of Jewish families will remember that they, you know, somebody in their past took in boarders. And so Chaya and her brother Asher become boarders. Chaya sleeps on three chairs that are, you know, placed next to each other like a like a railroad car. And she goes out and tries to find a job. And here too, I followed Sister Carrie. What would you do? But you would first go to the department stores and try to impress them that you could be a sales girl. But she knew as little of that about that as, as the farmers knew about farming. Of course, she doesn't get a job. She decides she doesn't want to be in the garment area. And so she finds a job as a cigar maker. And there too, I have to tell you um, that there was another book in the back of my mind, which this this is very, I don't know if people like to hear this or don't like to hear it, that you are very often the impulses for what you do and what you make your own and what you, you know, embroider on with your own imagination actually is stimulated by something that you've read. There was a very interesting book called I Belong to the Working Class by a young woman who was a Russian Jewish girl who came to New York, became a journalist, and there she met a man named Graham Phelps Stokes, Stokes, G. 
S, like Gregory Stillman, and they proceed to have what was called in the newspapers a Cinderella marriage. I don't know whether she walked into that eagerly. My book has spends a great many pages on Haya's resistance to this because she doesn't simply want to marry money. She's not just trying to stop being poor. And so a lot of the book is really about trying to figure out whether this man like Graham Stokes, my Gregory Stillman is calls himself a socialist, is living a life in which he's trying to be very active and useful to the poor. That's why he knows Jane Addams and introduces Chaya to Jane Addams. And um, the um, I guess a lot of the push and pull in the book is really about how to live a useful life, which I can think, of course, is a very contemporary question. Uh, there's a quote on the back of my book from Meg Wallitzer, who has a wonderful book called The Female Persuasion, which is about a college girl who just falls in love with a feminist heroine who comes to the campus and talks about how to be useful to women and so on. And in many ways, here we are 150 years later, however many years it is, my math is not good. And my book is really in many ways similar. You know, it's or hers is similar to mine, mine is similar to hers. It's about how do you take what you are given and use what you maybe discover along the way to live a useful life. So mm-hmm. that's that's what happens to you. Vaya. You tell a couple of stories of devastation caused at the time by incurable illness. Yes. Yes. Can you discuss how people were effective, what they knew, what happened? Well, you know how little people knew at the time about contagions and so on. And of course the city was the, the river was bubbling with with the horrible things that were thrown into it. I mean, it literally caught on fire. Not lot the lake on fire exactly, but and one of the scenes that I that I think I made up, I don't remember whether I heard this or not, but I believe I may have learned that it was possible that uh, the landlady, Chaya's landlady, is working in a in a sweatshop making overcoats. And one day, these men appear and end up bundling up the overcoats and taking them away because they are suspected of having fostered a contagion. And the poor landlady is, and everybody else who works there is thinking, oh my God, maybe we've given TB or cholera or something to the people who are buying these expensive coats up in the fancy stores. So that kind of thing was very common. And of course, there were not the kind of drugs. There were no antibiotics. Nobody could stop all of this. And so from time to time, people just sort of disappeared from the sweatshop or whatever it was because they were home dying of, of cholera or whatever whatever there might happen to be Or the around. sweatshop just closed up like well, that. The, the, the sweatshop would close and just disappear. And one day she comes there after this contagion episode and discovers that the people who ran the sweatshop have just taken off. Well, I want left, to point out- Left a couple of uh, pins on the floor. Right. You know. And her name is Mrs. Gottlieb, but she's yes. no relation. No relation to you. Okay. No. It wouldn't be acceptable today to hire a child. No, it wouldn't. Yes. So wouldn't. <laughs> why was it a thing back well, then? Well, it might have been It might have been to, to hire a child to entertain guests. Um, it might might have been also to be a reader in the, in the sweatshops or in the cigar factory. Well, cigar factories, actually. But one of the people whom I've written into the book, which was also a great delight, alongside Jane Addams, the other real character in the book is Florence Kelly, who wished no whiskey when she got married, Um, which is a sad story about her marriage. But she was the woman who worked very, very hard 
to change the labor laws or to create the labor laws and to keep children out of factories and so on. And so she's another one where I've dared, I mean, just take, take some chutzpah, but I really enjoyed writing this formidable woman, Chaya meets her and she's just, Jane Adams is kind of sweet and kind of like an aunt, but uh, Florence Kelly is a formidable woman and she just scares the hell out of Chaya when she meets her. But she is a woman who has figured out how to do good and she's doing it and she's real. Well, could you talk more about those women who wanted the basic human rights like bathrooms and breathable air? Why couldn't they unionize? We explain well, that. Why were employers able to treat them that way? Because and they when did that all because change? Because they could. Right, because they because could. They well, could. Did it change? Don't, don't ask for dates. Okay. Um, but I will say this, which is kind of sad to acknowledge, like so much else that has not changed, because if you look at the Gilded Age of, let's say, the 1890s, which is when most of this takes place, not a lot has changed when it comes to how rich people... <laughs> you know, go about living their lives. Um, The same thing if you look now at the way, yes, women can be hired for so many jobs, but we look at the wage disparities and all the rest of it. We're still getting kicked around, to be frank. And so at the time, women were not welcome in the unions. It was hard enough for men to unionize. Certainly women were not welcome in the unions. And so the women in the cigar factory at one point sort of throw a little, it's not exactly a strike, but they they have a demonstration and they're trying their hardest. So um, unfortunately, the worst aspects of what was happening at the time, they they have improved in many ways, but they have not improved in every way. Can you also address the social milieu that allowed children like Asher to work in dangerous jobs or roam the streets of Chicago without any Well, you know, I mean, I don't know when the truant laws started, but they certainly, maybe you know, but they certainly, nobody cared. There were already laws on the books requiring children to be educated. Nobody, yeah, but nobody cared. Nobody was was enforcing it. Nobody was enforcing it, exactly. So so Asher just kind of runs the alleys and runs the streets and he gets to know a pawnbroker and he goes to a book shop and he's overwhelmed with you know being in the in the this palace of books um but he doesn't want to steal from that person he steals from anybody who's got jewelry that he can get his hands on but he doesn't want to steal the books from the man who runs the bookstore that just does not feel like a good thing to do um, and he and he um has specific things he likes to st- steal specific thing people he likes to give them to that's right he does would you please read from one of my favorite passages in the book. It's when Chaya's little brother, Asher, starts to think of himself as Robin Hood, and he goes to the old city hall that functioned as a shelter at the time. And it's true. I did not make that up. A lot of people think that I just, you know, thought that up on my own, but it actually did happen. Shall I read this paragraph to you? From the, and the endless dark river of men. And the endless dark river of men, mostly men rumpled and redolent, found it worth their while to rise if they were still lying down and flock hope struck around him. On punishing winter nights by the hundreds in vests, in shirt sleeves, cheeks striped from sleep on a hard surface, they lay, sat, stood, unacknowledged, unofficial guests of the city of Chicago. A few were dark-skinned. Some spoke languages Asher heard only as music. The first time he saw them, he laughed out loud. It was like a parade. They milled, they shifted from foot to foot, sometimes amiably, sometimes irritably. They started fights like small fires that were doused as quickly as they had begun. Most, nearly all, wanted work. It's just beautiful. What do you think? Have we solved any of these problems? Well, look around you. <laughs> and look at the homeless men sleeping <laughs> sleeping uh, around Chicago. I'm afraid that we have not 
solved the problems. Things are better than they were. You know, you can't deny that there were, things were a lot worse then um, without a lot of the social safety nets uh, that came with the New Deal or whatever. But still, things are pretty horrible for a lot of people. So let's talk more about the legendary Jane Addams. What did she do for Chicago? Why was oh. that important? Well, you know, it's very interesting how Jane Addams found her way, if I can just take a little byway here. She um, she was the daughter of a legislator. I think he was a state senator, so she was pretty well-to-do. She was sent off to a women's kind of college. When she finished it, she was very depressed because there was nothing she could do with her energy and her talent. She went abroad. She did the kind of grand tour of Europe. And when she was in London, she discovered Toynbee House, which was the first settlement house. And she knew very quickly that this was something that she could do. And so when she came back to Chicago, she founded Hull, what became Hull House, and um, which was very near Maxwell Street, in fact. And there she did a number of things. And it was very complex because she believed that for example, not only did you want people to be able to eat, and so she helped with that, but that they deserved to um, to uh, know books, to watch plays, to indulge in the sort of the arts that the well-to-do um, you know could afford. That of course nobody ever would have thought of for the poor. And Chaya gives her a very hard time about this because in many ways she's afraid that it's frivolous. And so she enlists Jane Adams enlists the wealthy, of course, into giving her money to to do all of this with and. And um, one of the other things she did that was notable was that she thought that people needed to maintain their connection with the old country, whatever it might have been. So if you knew how to spin or weave or whatever, you know, she wanted you to be able to do that and show other people how to do it. So it's a very complex operation that she had. In the book, she's, she's still pretty young. She's fairly new at it. I fudged a little bit because it sounds like she's kind of deeper into it than she actually would have been by this date. But, you know. We don't really care about that, do we? <laughs> but she, what's interesting to me about what I've set up here is that, again, as I said before, Chaya is not simply marrying the first rich man, a lovely looking man and a very sweet man, but she's not just marrying up. Um, she's very concerned with, you know, his his um, take on the world. And when she and Jane Addams meet through Gregory, um, she argues with her a lot, again, about should these people, is this what they should do in there? Maybe if they get one day off, she's working two jobs. She works all day in a cigar factory and then she works in a private apartment going on with it at night. And she's not convinced necessarily until Gregory kind of convinces her that this is not frivolous, you know. And the same with the Columbian Exposition. It's very beautiful. She resists it. And then she finds herself stealing back to it to enjoy, you know, the, the incredible, well, the, as I said, it's a character of its, of its own, Chicago is, and so is the Columbian Exposition. And she discovers, you know, that there's so much to learn. We, for, we can easily forget that we have knowledge at our fingertips. We open our, our cell phones and, you know, ask ourselves a question and we don't know the answer. We can look it up or we can see it in the movies or on television. What did people know in the 1880s and 90s? Um, the people who came to the exposition who were from farms and small towns, many of most of them had never seen electricity, let alone the other glories of this thing with people from foreign countries and machinery and, you know, all sorts of incredible, you know, sort of signs of the future. I mean, I believe that World's Fairs that take place now are nothing, nowhere near as exciting as that would have been 
to mm-hmm. Chicago. So, you know, um, Chaya is kind of the heavy when it comes to all of that. You know, she goes to the women's building. She's not all that impressed with what these women have done um, in their spare time. You know, why do they make these lovely little objects and quilts and things like that? And she finally gets it. <laughs> but it's a, it's a bit of a fight. So the World Columbian Exposition still had a long-lasting effect on Chicago, not only because of Daniel Burnham's right. landscape architecture, right. but buildings, the yes, museum. Yes, many, many of them, and the museum, and, and which live. is the only building standing from the Right, from. and you live not that far away. Well, um, I don't. I live very close. And in fact, the way this book began, um, though I, I had already written a version of this in which the farm is set in New Hampshire, because I had lived in New Hampshire for a long time, and I kind of knew the, you know, I knew the landscape. It didn't work. I put it away. I, this book has been in and out of my drawer more times than I can tell you. But when I was here one day, instead of walking along the lake, which is the way I start my day, most days before I start writing, I walk behind the one still building still standing, which is now the Museum of Science and Industry, and walking around the beautifully landscaped but basically empty place over there, I found myself thinking, oh my goodness, wait a minute. What if I tried to recreate what was here and is no longer here? And that is when the one thing that I think is always necessary for a story or a book to take fire happened, which is two ideas coming together. You can't do it with one. Two things have to be sort of made to ignite. And in this case, what ignited this little match fire that went off was, what if I took that story of the farmers? I'll move it to Wisconsin, where Sister Carrie came from, and I will have her come here. And this will represent, you know, her future, the choices that she has in her life. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you, you talked a little bit about it, but the the novel's love story. Yes. It runs throughout. It does. And it's it's a story that's been so interesting to me. I said at the beginning that I've been going to a lot of book groups and, you know, they have a lot of questions to ask. And a number of people have asked, said, have said, volunteered, I was so suspicious of Gregory at the beginning. You know, I thought he was going to be, you know, kind of like the traveling salesman, you know, the guy who's going to take advantage of this girl. Remember, if you've read The Devil in the White City, that the man who took advantage of the girls ended up killing them in H.H. H. Holmes. So in this case, people People were very suspicious. They couldn't believe that a wealthy man could be serious about wanting to be a socialist or at least to be, you know, to be helpful to the poor. And it takes them a long time, as it takes Haya, to stop being suspicious of him and to allow him to become the very good man that he is. He's very earnest. Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, the only thing wrong with him is that he's a bad writer, she discovers, which for me is a sin. Um, And at the very end, well, I won't tell you how the book ends, but anyway, he's writing a book and... Um, and he does not, you know, she's not very impressed with it, though she sees that he's trying very, very hard. At one point, he even moves into an apartment in a really poor part of town, but he furnishes it with some of the really nice things from his own apartment, <laughs> trying to be poor and failing. So this is so interesting. I have to tell you, it was just one of the most beautiful books. I've well, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've been thrilled to hear people's response to this because I have to tell you, I did not expect this response. As I said, the book went in and out of my desk drawer. And I just kept thinking, I can't do this. And then it was actually was rejected by one publisher. I've never had a book in in 11 books. Out of 11 books, this is the first that's ever not been taken immediately by the first people who saw it. And that and that was because that editor said, you can't do history. Nobody goes to read you for history. And, and yeah, Chicago, that's kind of sort of interesting. But really, you know, the New York snobs don't have any great interest in Chicago. And I suspect, frankly, that if the murders hadn't taken place in the lake, in uh, the, the uh, Devil in the White City, that book might not have sold either. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, so, so it was the first 
rejection I ever had. So I didn't have a lot of faith in this book. And I have been so thrilled to hear responses like yours, which are many. This book is being done in Wilmette. For those of you who don't know, it's one of the suburb, poshier suburbs of Chicago. And I just, I'm, they're doing the kind of one book Wilmette reading. And just yesterday, I got a note from the head librarian saying, well, we have 80 copies of the book now in the library for people to read the book. So it apparently has found its audience. And I'm thrilled to hear uh, your praise for it because it's just totally unexpected. So, and I'm grateful. So I'd like to ask you the traditional new books question. I have no idea. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> what are you working on now? Nothing. What I am working on going to book groups. I actually did two in a day like, a couple of weeks ago, like an actress, you know, with her matinee and her evening performance. No, I have just not begun to think. I believe that the next thing I write will be poetry or stories or something very different from a novel. I'm not going to embroil myself in, in, in something that took me from 1987 to the present to do. It'll be something that I can dispatch quickly and neatly. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you so much. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Again, I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature. And today I've been talking to Rose Ellen Brown about her new novel, The Lake on Fire. Join the network to learn about new books of all kinds and to hear my previously recorded podcasts. Goodbye until my next conversation. Thank you.